Thank you for tuning in to the Headmasters podcast. This is Dr. John DePoe, always behind the microphone here as we launch into another episode. I normally like to share some announcements that are coming up in the school year, and the big announcement is the school year is almost over. So we have about four weeks uh, at the time that I'm recording this left. That's including finals week, which uh, can feel a little lighter. So uh, there are a lot of events coming up. We have uh, senior thesis presentations. We will have Scholars Day. We will have graduation um, and many other things. We've got some theater productions and so many other great things coming around the corner. Um, So look for those on the calendar. Look for email information on all those events. Um, Today, I'm real excited to share uh, a conversation that I have with Mr. Jared Brock. He's our assistant head of the Schools of Logic and Rhetoric. Um, We talked about this idea of uh, what's called plundering the Egyptians. And it's an idea that we in classical education have used that we borrowed from uh, St. Augustine. And so uh, I don't want to spoil the the whole conversation, but the short of it is um, it's a conversation about why is it that we engage and use and borrow from so much non-Christian sources and history and stories as part of what we do in our education? So you'll want to check that out. Um, It's a really good conversation. And without further ado, let's jump right in. All right, I'm sitting down with our assistant head of the Schools of Logic and Rhetoric, Mr. Jared Brock. Jared, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. I'm glad to to get to do this. Well, this is your podcast debut, at least for uh, our podcast. Um, I don't know if you've been on others, but um, so this is a big step up in your life, I'm sure. Yep. I've listened (laughs) to lots of podcasts. This is the first time I'm speaking on one. All right. Well, I wanted to have a conversation with you um, about this idea of why do we study uh, so many things that are often called pagan, pagan literature, pagan history. Um, There's all this part of classical education that sometimes can rub Christians the wrong way uh, because it seems like it's ungodly, it's sinful, and maybe at best the reason people give for why we study it is to refute it or to know it so that we can reject it. Um, but I think there's a bigger reason why we studied, a mu- actually a much better reason to study these things. Um, and so I, I brought you on because I wanted you to bring um, a very famous passage from St. Augustine to bear on these issues. Um, would you mind telling uh, our listeners about Augustine's perspective on why we should read the, these, uh, this part of secular knowledge, history, poetry, and so on? Yeah, so Augustine writes a book called On Christian Doctrine, and um, it's he writes it later in life, and he talks about plundering the Egyptians, um, and when Israel leaves Egypt, uh, they plunder them by the gold and silver that the Egyptians give them. Um, so Augustine talks about this, and that really... Um, You know, he says here, these things, speaking of gold and silver, which the Egyptians did not create themselves, but they dug out of mines of God's providence, which are everywhere scattered abroad and are perversely and unlawfully prostituting to the worship of devils. These, therefore, the Christian 
when he separates himself in spirit from the miserable fellowship of these men, ought to take away from them and to vote and to devote to their proper use in preaching the gospel. So Augustine is talking about, he's using this metaphor to talk about how there are these yeah, things that we can learn um, from the pagans. There's these things that we can learn from atheists. There's, you know, things that we can learn from people who don't believe in God. And we shouldn't, you know, ignore those things just because Christians didn't come up with them. But instead, just like the Israelites plundered the Egyptians, we should plunder the best um, of what people know to be true um, and take those things and use them for God's glory. Yeah, so it's one of those things noted that it's like, it's not even that the Egyptians were using the gold and the silver for their proper end or purpose. Um, you know, they were using them often to worship false gods and do terrible things. But there still is something intrinsically valuable about the beauty of the jewelry that says we don't have to just reject it wholesale. We need to, maybe a word we like to use is we have to redeem it. Um, we take the goodness of those things that are currently being twisted or used slightly in an improper way, but we can redeem the, the substance of it and redirect it toward a proper and right and good end. Yeah, that's right. I, I often think of math as a good analogy here. We think of math as objectively true. Um, lots of Christians have contributed a lot to the development of knowledge about math, um, but you know, we don't ignore it just because certain, like we don't ignore the aspects of math that were made by people who are not Christians Mm -hmm. and who, you know, math can be used in bad ways and to do evil things. And, um, just because that's the case, we don't say, Oh, we're not going to learn about these things or we're just going to ignore these things. But no, we want our kids to know math. We want them to, uh, take them and use them for God's glory. And, uh, to learn about them just because they've been used badly doesn't mean that we ignore them. And math is a great example. Now, I'm, I'm working from memory. I didn't know we were going there. So if I get some of the details of the history wrong, bear with this. But it's my recollection that the, a lot of our mathematical systems that we have, like the numerals we use, um, we have because Fibonacci, the famous Fibonacci sequence guy, he was an Italian mathematician in the Middle Ages, he learned his math going down to like Egypt or um, somewhere in the Middle East, I forget where, and he learned these Arabic numerals, which, by the way, are so much better than using Roman numerals to do complex math. Well, you know who developed these Arabic numerals? It was not a bunch of uh, Christians. It was a bunch of Muslims. Um, so he brings back to the Christian world a better way of doing math that was developed by the Muslims. Um, now, here's the beautiful thing is that we wouldn't call it Muslim math. It's just mathematics. And this comes back to this idea that when we're redeeming these things, we're freeing them from the falsehoods and the culture that sometimes are dark, and we're actually bringing them to light. But it, it, it shows the transcendent truth in these subjects that, that transcends that particular culture, place, and time. Yeah, God made the world, and... Um The world belongs to God. Um, As Abraham Cooper says, right, all truth is God's truth. And those those truths um, are God's truths. And so just because, you know, someone who's not a Christian or someone who's immoral or pagan or who worships idols 
um, discovers the truth, we don't say, "Ah, oh, well, it must be, you know, no longer true." And and these things are true for political theory. Um, I think that there's a natural truths about the way that humans behave together socially. Uh, these things are true morally, um, you know, and you know, tragedies happen, and because of moral truths, because of ignorance. So these these truths are true um, because they're God's truth. They're the way that the world works. And just because um, they come to us from people, you know, who worship idols or who are pagans, um, doesn't mean that we ignore them because it's God's truth in the world. Um, I think of John 1, Jesus is the divine logos, right? The logic, the reason of God. Uh, the world makes sense, and God, you can, you can see God in the sense that it makes, and so we don't, we learn things about God through learning uh, the truths about the world, and we don't, uh, just because they come from Egypt, we don't ignore them, um, but instead we take them captive and make them obedient to Christ. The, um, I was thinking about um, these eternal truths that we, you find in these other cultures and these other times. Um, one of the ones that has always stood out to me is the story of Antigone. This is one of Sophocles' uh, three plays. Most people are familiar with the Oedipus one, right? Um, and Antigone is, I think, the second one in that, that trio. But one of the, the key parts of Antigone is this idea of um, this the sister trying to deal with the un, the unceremonial burying or or lack thereof of her brother and the fact that on their culture he would forever you know be be cursed and and not be able to enjoy an afterlife but there is a law laid down by the now king saying not to uh, not to to give him a proper burial she does it anyway and she does so on this idea that there are two sets of laws there is man's law and there is God's law, and when the two come into conflict, you obey God's law. Now, that sounds like something you could get out of the book of Romans. You know, like this is, uh, and when you find the exact quote uh, from Antigone, it, it is strikingly very much like something you almost would expect to find in Scripture, what she says to defend it. Um, and, and that's the maybe the segue I wanted to say is like, in Scripture, do we see, in, whether in Scripture, church history, great thinkers of uh of our faith, do we see people doing this plundering of the Egyptians? Is there, what, what would be some of the things that stand out to you, Jared, as examples of where Christians have effectively plundered the Egyptians for uh, the, the glory of God's kingdom? Yeah, so I, I think of, um, so in the Middle Ages, uh, the Christians lose access to a lot of what we would consider pagan literature, um, and then the Crusades re-introduces um, them to pagan literature. And they, uh, I mean, they deal with this question the same way as we do. Um, Aquinas gets into a spat with these other people because he's using Aristotle and he's taking these things that he learns from Aristotle and saying, this looks, you know, really true. These things look actually really true. And um, so he actually gets into a spat over this because some people think he shouldn't be using Aristotle at all that you know Aristotle's a pagan what does he know um, and so I, I think that that's the case Calvin does this Luther does this um, Christians throughout history have read these things 
and they've said, that sounds a lot like the Bible. Um, and I, um, yeah, I'm going to not ignore this, not say this doesn't count, but to be like amazed both that they've discovered this and, you know, think mm-hmm. through these things, but with a lens of how would Christ, you know, take these things captives? And I, I keep re- repeating that phrase from yeah. 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, because I had a professor in college that basically talked about part of Paul's strategy is when he came to a new culture and was trying to convert people was to find the things that are true in that culture. And he he's talking about, we tend to like, introspect this verse and think of it as taking our own thoughts captive, uh, which is true, but he's all, he's thinking of it as like, what are things that are true in this person, I'm, this culture I'm trying to convert? Let's not ignore those things. Some things, like the strongholds, we demolish strongholds in every argument that puts itself up against Christ, but some things we take captive, and as we take those things captive and plunder them, we make them obedient to Christ. We make, you know, we incorporate them as a way of saying, hey, your granddad was wrong to worship this guy, but you know what? These things were true and they just need to be um, made obedient to Christ. And you can, yeah, we can recognize the good in the culture without ignoring the bad at the same time, too. Yeah, there, um, I think that, that there is a place to demolish and destroy. Like, there are some ideas that are just bankrupt, you know, like nihilism or uh, relativism. There's no, I don't think there's much to redeem, if anything, in those ideas. Those are the things that we ought to utterly just come out and destroy. But then there are other things that are just misaimed or incomplete or um, partly there, but not all the way there, that I think when those truths are brought into a Christian framework, they're completed. And they are richer and they actually shine more brightly because now they're in the place and serving the function that they ought to serve. Um, one of the, Another one I, I think of with this is with the study of something we do here at KPA, rhetoric. Um, you know, that was actually St. Augustine's original um, spe- specialty. Before he was a Christian, he developed his deep knowledge, became arguably the greatest teacher of rhetoric of his time in the Roman Empire. And um, when he became a Christian, he didn't just throw all the rhetoric away. Um, What he realized is that the use of rhetoric, when done rightly, can serve the kingdom of God. And um, so speaking beautifully, having eloquent and persuasive speech, and the art of doing that correctly, using the principles of people like Quintilian or Cicero, um, there's nothing intrinsically anti-Christian about it. Um, that those are tools that those are, some would say even these are, are either necessary truths of reason or, ne- or, or parts of human nature and how we are persuaded and moved. And Augustine would just say, we're tapping into those things and using those correctly for the glory of God. Um, and so some things we demolish, but then there are other things we take captive and then, uh, are able then to incorporate into the Christian worldview and use for uh, kingdom ends. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think um, I think the truth. I like to to talk about this in my history class. So, whether um, people create or um, discover in, in ancient worldview, 
they care less, a lot less about authorship because you discover the truth. You don't create the truth. The truth is outside of yourself. It's an objective reality that you discover and you receive that truth. And so I, I think that that should be our posture. The truth is outside of us. We discover it and when we can come across it in unlikely places. And when we discover that truth, we don't say, oh, they're pagans. We're going to ignore it. Instead, we, you know, we bring that truth in. We make it a part of the Christian message. Or I don't know if that's the right way to play it. It's already there in the Christian method message. It's just a way of saying, hey, um, you're doing these things wrongs, but you're doing these things right. And, you know, that's a good thing as well. Um, maybe as we, we approach the ending of, of this discussion, maybe one other area I wanted to personally bring up is how this plays out in America, that our founding fathers uh, were very deeply educated in uh, the classics, um, that our American government is uh, by no means an accident, <laughs> that it's structured the way it is, that it is intentionally in many ways modeled on the Roman system of government and law. And, uh, and our founding fathers were also, um, many of them, most of them were deeply uh, true to their Christian faith, that that was a deep influence on them. And they saw absolutely no contradiction in having a political legal system based on the Romans while also adhering to their Christian values, beliefs, uh, the, the faith that they had. That, that Those were not in conflict for them. And I would want to say that we reap the benefits of that. We have an amazing uh, system of government with checks and balances and a legal system that for all of the problems that it does have are still significantly better than anything else that I think is out there in the world. So um, I'm very grateful that we had founding fathers who are not afraid to look to the pagans for some insight into how to govern um, and to wed that and redeem it and, and use it in a way that is also consistent with uh, their Christian convictions. So all that is uh, just another way in which we benefited from, you know, we plundered the Egyptians and we're, we're currently, presently enjoying the riches. Yeah, that's right. I, um, you know, the more I learn, the more I balk when I hear people talk about democracy because all of the ancients said that democracy was the worst form of government. Um, which is why we don't have a democracy. We have a republic. Yeah. <laughs> because a democracy, the majority rules against the minority, and they destroy the minority. And so, um, yeah, the ancient Greeks said that democracies were short-lived, and you know they went down in flames basically. And so, um, our founding fathers knew this. They knew the perils of democracy. I think that we would do well to study the pagans and to remember that a true democracy is not the best form of government. You know, a republic is mm-hmm. a much better form of government, which is what we have. We have a republican form, a republic. So um, those are important reasons to study, uh, to understand. And even as we enter into conversations with non-Christians who maybe want to talk about this democracy, it's good for us to say, well, you know, a democracy is not a good form of government. <laughs> um, historically, they have not been strong forms of government, and so, uh, and that's just why we don't have one. I think a really good Christian kind of check or addition to that that you find with our founders is the Bill of Rights. So that's something you don't find um, 
for instance, in ancient Rome. And that was a way to ensure the, the individual rights that individuals possess as bearers of God's image, you know, that they connect that Bill of Rights with being uh, created by God. And I think that's, once again, one of those ways in which they redeem it, they clean it up, they take a good idea and make it better with the Christian worldview. Um, I also think that it, one of the reasons to, there's a bunch of practical reasons to study the classics. I know it seems so impractical to a lot of people to read a bunch of, you know, thousand-year-old books, but one of the practical reasons uh, that you were, were that you reminded me of is that they have already tried almost everything that's been out there. There's not a lot that's new under the sun, um, or maybe to, to quote the Bible accurately, there's nothing new under the sun. So um, they've thought about different forms of government. They've thought about different economic systems. They have, if you go through their literature, pretty much all the themes, all of the plot structures, all these things have pretty much already been out there. So when you study the classics, you get a rich, well-rounded education that should give you all the different angles, all the the foundational uh, positions, starting points, patterns. Um, and, And sometimes, I mean, I even look at things in academia today, and I think, you know, why are we even having this conversation? They already hashed this out in the 1500s, but apparently we forgot it. So we've got to repeat ourselves and go through this whole argument all over again. If we were all well-versed in the classics, we wouldn't. I think that we would save ourselves a lot of time by not repeating the mistakes, uh, whether that is historical leadership mistakes or ideological mistakes of the past. Um, any final thoughts or anything we didn't get to, uh, Jared, that you, you think we our listeners need to hear on this? No, I think that's a great place to stop. All right, man. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, teaching our medieval history where this whole topic, I think, is a great intersection as well. Um, So uh, thanks for being here and appreciate this conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Headmasters Podcast. Keep your eyes on all of those events and end of school year things happening from Scholars Day to senior thesis presentations, theater productions and graduation and so many other events. So uh, looking forward to wrapping up the school year. Can you believe it's almost over? And uh, of course, I'm already thinking about the next school year and I'm getting excited for uh, where we're going. Thank you all. And uh, thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time.